confession to make before I can uh, start this message. It makes me exceptionally uncomfortable. As I've been looking at this passage, I found it an uh, unbelievably difficult passage to, uh, to study, not just because of the complexity of uh, what's been written in this passage, but just because of its invasive nature. And as I've been looking at Jesus in prayer for his, for his disciples and just looking at, at him and his compassion for them and his love for them and his desire for them, I've just been, I don't know, just overwhelmed with a sense that I am not what God wants me to be. That my relationship with him is a shadow of what is contained in this passage. And it's just reduced me. And my wife can tell you I've been almost unbearable to live with and I think I slept for two hours last night and I just knowing that I have to get up here and preach about this passage and yet knowing the shortcomings of my own life has really been quite a struggle. Mm. Now I have that out of the way. I want to tell you another story. It's, uh, it's not the same, but it's just about as painful. You need to listen because you won't hear it again. I don't like talking about it. Back in June 1994, my fiancé and I were driving down to Barney to go to a game of football. Uh, playing footy down there. We hate Barney out at Yak, so I was looking forward to it. It's going to be a good day. The last few months, though, in my life had been quite exciting times. Um, kind of looking forward to getting married and kind of doing all the things that, uh, in preparation for that and, that and being as excited about those things as lads can be about, you know, booking venues and getting photographers and um, picking cakes and... Uh, paying for honeymoons and sorting out groomsmen and bridesmaids and all that stuff chicks get into, but us lads tend to stand at a distance. And you have to make some sacrifices too, but it's worth it. I had, I'd parted with um, half of the guitars I owned and my amps and things, and that was painful. But as I said, it's kind of worth it, and you don't mind, because you've found something that you've given your life to. And you've given your life to it on every level. And you're looking forward to enjoying and experiencing that for the rest of your life. Now, part of the excitement and I guess the whole build-up to, to uh, the wedding and the marriage and all that was that we were buying a house. Big development in our life. But, um, 
And while we were travelling down to Barney that day, the, the topic of this house came up. It was all ready to go. There was only one thing waiting, and that was her signature on the paper. And then it would be done and dusted, and we'd have somewhere to live. But as, uh, as the conversation developed, it took on a new dimension. And I noticed a little bit of kind of evasiveness and didn't want to talk about it. And in my anxiousness, uh, I, I just asked the question, you know, what's, what's the hold up? It's just a signature. Just put your name on a bit of paper and away we go. And then as uh, we swung into the Barney football ground and ground is in front of me, I can, I can see the moment. I can see the dash in my car. I can see the little man there, little Barney man who wants my $8 to go into the football ground. The whole image frozen in my mind. As she looked at me and said, I don't want to marry you. I want to go and live life. I just want to see what's out there. We're not getting married. A simple little sentence changed my whole world as I knew it. I just kind of sat there frozen in time and as the things, the construction of my life just kind of crashed to the ground around me. I'm still trying to work out, I've got to pay this guy eight bucks to get into the football. It was, it was just one of those moments in life where everything comes unglued. And over the next couple of days, I would kind of experience the full impact that that simple little sentence had. My whole world and, and the life that I had anticipated had changed dramatically. It was not what I had expected. And I was questioning what on earth is going on. I, and I, just, I tell you this story because I think... This is the environment that the disciples found themselves in. It was due to a simple sentence earlier on in John's Gospel in, in chapter 13, verse 31, that initiates this whole series of events. Jesus just simply says, Now the Son of Man and God is glorified in him. What Jesus is saying in this, in this little sentence is that his time has come. His ministry with the disciples is coming to an end and he is heading to the cross. And now this simple little sentence will change the world as disciples knew it, dramatically. Within the farewell discourse that, that kind of journeys on after that, Jesus reveals that he is departing and where he is going they can't come. That amongst them there is a betrayer, amongst this tight-knit group of people. There is one who is not aligned to, to, to their understanding of things. And even Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and without a doubt the most passionate follower of Jesus, they hear that even he will deny that he even knows Jesus. The disciples 
have spent three years with Jesus. They have walked the Galilean landscape with him, participating in his ministry. And now they share a unique and intimate bond with Jesus. And they are no doubt anticipating a life of unparalleled experience with the one that they have come to call Lord. However, over the next few days, they will experience the life-changing impact of that little sentence. Soon, they will see their Lord arrested, cruelly and unjustly treated and sentenced to death on a cross. They will be left shattered. They will be left numb, even lost, confused and perhaps angry. What has happened? What is going on? This is not what we had expected. We thought this was the Messiah. And all we have is an empty tomb. This is world-shattering stuff. The kind of event that can shake your faith to the core. Some of us here know what it's like to have our lives shaken by simple little sentences. You've got cancer. We don't think your child or this person will make it through this accident or this tragedy. And we have placed our faith and trust in God through Jesus and yet catastrophe and some kind of disaster, some kind of ripping pain has come into our world and we are shattered and we are numbed. We're lost and confused and perhaps angry. What has happened? Where is our refuge? Where is their refuge? Now it's to this end that Jesus now prays for his disciples. It's for this reason that he stops and he prays out aloud that they will hear the prayer that he is about to pray. You know, Jesus doesn't need to pray out aloud at all. Jesus lives in constant communion with the Father and is always talking with him. When he prays aloud, it is for the benefit of the listeners and the readers. He knows what they will face and he knows that they will need to be affirmed that he is the one he claimed to be and that his message to them over the past three years is their strength and their refuge in a hostile time. It is also for this reason too that John saw fit to record this prayer in the gospel that you and I in time to come would read this most amazing prayer and in our times of hardship find affirmation, confidence and strength in God who in Christ has overcome the world and now prays for our preservation in him. We, uh, we pick the prayer up here uh, in John 17, 6. Jesus prays or continues to pray, I have revealed you to those who you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. 
For I gave them the words you gave me, and they have accepted them. They knew with certainty that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Here in verses 6 and 8, as Jesus prays, he's affirming the disciples. And he's affirming in them his claims and who he has claimed to be. And nothing has changed here, even though he is leaving. Jesus also reveals the special nature of the relation that the disciples have with him. And that is why he is drawn with compassion now to pray for them. In his ministry with the disciples, Jesus has been, and in his ministry to the world, Jesus has been the manifestation of God. He is God in the flesh. He has, made, he has in himself made the character and person of God visible. And the Hebrew notion or the understanding of this is not just intellectual knowledge. That they know God through Jesus is not just purely based in intellectual knowledge. But it also encompasses experience and intimacy. This is what the disciples have come to know and accept. This is their understanding of God. It is more than just hearing something, hearing a truth. It has sunk into their lives and they now share that reality. This brief but profound section is echoing the affirmation of Jesus' ministry. He has fully revealed God to the disciples and they have accepted it. Now Jesus' ministry is drawing to a close and he seeks to affirm the disciples who he has a, a, a special relationship with him who have come to believe in Jesus and in God who has sent him. And it's, it's, it's just extremely important that we understand this concept because it is this concept of knowing God that anchors, that will anchor the disciples and can anchor us in the storms of life. The prayer rolls on and in verses 9, 9 through to 11, Jesus prays, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours, and all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus here makes it very clear who he is praying for. This is a prayer for those who have believed in Jesus. That he is God in the flesh. And while the focus of this prayer is on the disciples, we should not think then that the world 
lies outside the love of God. That, that God loves the world is the reason why Jesus came here in the first place. John 3.16 reveals that clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent his son into the world to die for it. That people might have life in him. But right here and now, the focus of Jesus' prayer is his disciples. Up to now they have been protected and held together by God's presence in Jesus. Now this presence is going and the leadership and unity that this presence has provided will end with his departure. With this in mind, Jesus prays for the unity of the disciples to continue. The source of that unity and its preservation is the power of God's name. Jesus prays rather incredibly that disciples would, re, would remain one, just as he and the Father are one. This is a unity that is beyond human ability. This is a unity that is only possible through the power of God. The picture, the picture of this unity that Jesus is presenting is that through coming to know God fully, they have been invited into this unique relationship. They now share reciprocally in this loving relationship with God. And it unifies them and they share in it. And that is why Jesus can only pray for them about this because if you don't know God, you cannot share this reality. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. We are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with, God, with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles, that's the disciples, plus a couple of others, with, Je with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises up and becomes a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together and becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Jesus' prayer here is prayed as though this unity is the possession of those who have accepted his word, the gospel message of Jesus about the Father and their relation, that they are indeed one and that those who have come to know that join in that fellowship. Those who receive this message are invited into this unique relationship and share in its blessings and reality. And while these are rather massive concepts, and this, is an this prayer, though, is an extremely practical and necessary prayer. The disciples are to become the founders of the church, of God's church, his people here on earth. And if they are to succeed in this mission, they all need to rise above their differences. Or as Paul writes in Colossians 3.13, they'll need to bear with one another. You know, there could not be a more diverse and kind of eclectic group of people brought together. If you were bringing a team of people together, you would not have done it like this. You would have gone and got some Myers-Briggs personality test and looked through that and filtered out all the crazies and got in all the ones who would get along. But that is not what Jesus has done. He has called people to him who have responded to him and know him. And, this 11, and these 11 disciples now, they have 11 different worldviews. There's fishermen, 
There's tax collectors, kind of traitors. And then there's zealots who like to assassinate people like tax collectors. And they're all together in this group that's going to kind of be the founders of God's work in the world. This is the group entrusted with the future of the church and the mission of bringing glory to God on the earth. This prayer is extremely practical and necessary. You know, here in this building, we have a few hundred different worldviews. We have a few hundred different opinions. How much more necessary then is this prayer over us, the body of Christ, as we seek to, to participate in God's mission in the world and to bring him glory? We should listen and hear as Jesus prays for our unity. And it should be a prayer of ours. And Jesus is praying for us. Yet we too can continue that prayer in our own lives, that we would pray for unity amongst ourselves. The evil one, the one who Jesus is praying protection against, the devil and the forces of this world could think of nothing more, more delicious than to, than to fracture this group in its infancy and thwart God's revelation of his name and his glory in the world. Jesus prays that this would not be the case. This unity of relation is a gracious gift from the Father for his children to enjoy. But tragically, we can make a mockery of it. We can bring it shame. We can grieve it. We can let our differences, the ones that don't matter, override our commonality, namely our shared love for God and Jesus. Nothing, 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 nothing turns people away from God quicker than disharmony in the church. Why on earth would you want to have anything to do with a God whose people fight and cannot get along and cannot resolve simple differences? You can find better harmony and unity at your local football club. They share a common purpose and they'll do anything to get over it, to win a premiership. We share a common purpose to bring glory to God's name in the earth. We need to hear this prayer for unity. Take it on board. Put our our selfishness and our pride aside and seek to love each other. Nothing proclaims God's presence louder than a loving, forgiving community. Nothing brings glory to God's name more emphatically than the breaking down of hostilities between people through God's shared presence. The world does not understand this kind of love. It doesn't understand how two two people who have historical roots who have fought against each other for generations can come together and share the same space. The world's operation is to point at those things that have, that have hurt each, us and to repay them and to repay hurt with hurt. The extra mile that the world goes to is to make sure that we are not the most um, hurt in the scenario, 
to make sure the other is suffering more, if you like. Not so with God's people. There's something divine, something completely supernatural when warring parties can embrace in love. Jesus had said earlier in the gospel, in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By this, as I have revealed the Father to you, as I have imitated God, you now will imitate me in the world. If you love one another, here Jesus prays that this reality of union with God would bind his followers together and protect them from the efforts of the devil to divide them and thus proclaim a different and false image of God. The disciples' lives are to reflect God's glory by, by being united despite their differences. Our lives are to do the same. We need to hear this prayer of Jesus being prayed over us. His prayer rolls on further. And down in, in verse 12 now, we pick it up again. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have a full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Jesus, as he looks at his disciples and as he's praying there for them, and as he realises that he will soon be gone, realises that they will remain in the world and in a hostile environment. And he now prays that they will cope with this hostility of an unbelieving world. This world has rejected Jesus and in turn will show no favour to those aligned to his message. In John 15, Jesus has warned his disciples that because of him, they will be hated. The world has first hated the Son and the Father who sent him. And now because the disciples, now because the disciples and due to their relationship to Jesus, the world will also hate them. Jesus has also stated that he is departing and will no longer be with them. This is a temporary arrangement though, for earlier he has promised that he will not leave them as orphans in the world, but will send a comforter, the Holy Spirit. But until then, the disciples are to be equipped with the word. The word that Jesus has given them, or this word, is nothing less than the truth of the revelation of God that has been manifest in the life of Jesus. And this is synonymous with knowing God and identifying with him. This knowledge is where refuge is to be found. Jesus has also stated that they live in the world and yet Jesus can say that they are not of the world. 
this little part of the prayer just simply acknowledges their location geographically, but their position spiritually. Within John's gospel, the world is not a place on a map like Rome or Galilee or Jerusalem. The world is seen in the context of a spiritual domain, an atmosphere of darkness and unbelief. Its values are hostile to God, and thus it is not the dominion of the disciples' spiritual identity any more than it is of Jesus's. And in that sense, the disciples are not of the world any longer. These two kingdoms stand opposed to each other. This position, there is a position of hostility towards the disciples and it will mean that they will face spiritual dilemmas. Jesus knows the power of the evil one for one of the disciples has been lost to him. Jesus is fully aware that representing God in the world is an invitation into a genuine battle. Jesus is concerned that they will not be discouraged and overcome in this hostile environment. Discouragement is another weapon of the devil against God's people to nullify, to dissuade them from following Jesus, from growing in relationship with him. We too can experience this conflict. We too live in this environment of unbelief, of cynicism, and even of abject hostility that at, that at times can just be very discouraging and overwhelming. Some of you know the pain of family rejection due to Jesus. Some of you have lost job opportunities due to, due to Jesus. I know that my brother has. I can say that because I don't think he's here today. So no matter what I say about him, because he's down in Melbourne. But great job opportunities that he has had to let go because what they have wanted him to do has stood in conflict with his relationship with God. He just couldn't do it. Some of you may have even experienced the threat of physical harm due to your love for Jesus. It may even just be as simple as social ostracisation, loneliness. I doubt I would have to dig too far to find at some level or that there is some level of sufferance due to your love for Jesus, if you indeed love him. We are not dissimilar to the disciples, children of God living in a hostile world. Jesus knows our need for courage and strength. He is well aware of the hostile nature of the world, and that is why he has prayed for our protection against the evil forces. And again, God's name, his revelation to us, and all that we know about him will be the refuge. The word that Jesus has imparted to them will be that refuge. We have it now in print. They were fortunate enough to see it in real time. But now it's been handed down to us in the Bible. As a rather wise man 
wrote in Proverbs 18, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord, the name, everything about him, his truth contained in this word, is a strong tower. Pressing to God, strength will rise as we call upon his name, as we anchor our lives in his word through, through life's storms. The one who has said, take heart, for I have overcome the world, now prays for the disciples that they too will overcome the world. This prayer does not stay in the Garden of Gethsemane. It echoes down through the corridors of history to right here this morning. Jesus, the one who has conquered the world, is praying on your behalf for your strength, that you would find strength in his word. Over the, the journey of uh, the farewell discourse, in the chapters leading up to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, three times Jesus has said to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. He knows what's coming. And he is assuring them, do not be troubled. I have overcome the world. He has promised another counsellor will come to them, the Holy Spirit. His role will be to remind them, to reveal and to strengthen them and you and I in his teachings. Nothing more, nothing less. And this is described in those chapters as peace. A peace that passes all understanding. A peace that the world cannot give you, it cannot emulate. The prayer moves on. We pick it up again in, in, um, in verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Finally, as Jesus' concern for his disciples and what lies ahead is expressed in this prayer, he prays that they will continue to remain holy. Jesus prays that the disciples might be sanctified in truth. To be sanctified is, is, is synonymous here in this sense with being holy, being set apart for God and his purposes. It's already been stated that the disciples are no longer aligned to this world and its kingdom and its ruler. They have aligned themselves with God and now find themselves um, in a new spiritual reality, if you like. Here Jesus is praying that the means by which the disciples are able to remain holy, the means through which they can um, continue in this intimacy with God and being set apart from the world and aligned to his purposes is through his truth, through his word. This is the means. This truth that he is praying for is God's word. For them, it is Jesus in the flesh. For us, it is our Bible. 
Jesus, in his life and message, has not only revealed the Father, but he has also given a perfect model of what, sanct- of what a sanctified life looks like. We need look no further than the life of Jesus to see how we are to remain holy. Jesus' life was marked by intimacy with God. And at the end of it, he could say he had perfectly obeyed the Father's will and lived a life according to that will, even to the point of death. We find the will of God contained within his word. We are to seek it in there and immerse ourselves in it, become saturated with it. For this is what will keep us sanctified in an ungodly world. The world bombards us and immerses us with its message of self-indulgent. Life is not to be found in a loving, intimate relationship with God. Life, they say, is to be found in a loving, intimate relationship with yourself. Constantly, from our media, from our TVs, from radio, from songs, the secular message is you don't need God. You just need to experience the pleasures of this world and life is just reduced down at best to experience to a series of experiences there is nothing sacred anymore everything is just something to try marriage is not for life sex is just an experience like going to the movies the sanctity of life is based on whether or not it is convenient to us We can just terminate a life if it impacts on our job progress. In this environment, sin can soon become just a cliche thing. And we forget who we are. And we forget whose trip it is we are on. God has called us out of the world. And into his marvellous light that we might enjoy his presence and glorify him in the world. Now Jesus prays over the disciples that they would remain holy. That they would press into him. In order for the disciples to remain holy, they must continue to be separated from the world in a spiritual sense and aligned with God. To be holy is not in this instance a description of perfection. It refers to a life that is so aligned with God that it reflects his passions completely. What God loves, you will love. What God hates, you will hate. What makes him weep will make you weep. We sit around watching TV where people are just kind of blown apart and ripped up and it's just like, doesn't bother us anymore. We've become immune to tragedy. Someone who has set themselves in the pursuit of holiness can rightfully say and can rightfully be called sanctified. They are holy in that they are attached to God's purposes and his presence. In this prayer, Jesus understands that a complete attachment to the truth discovered in God's word and intimacy with God will be the means of achieving this holiness. Jesus is concerned for their holiness and for good reason. Hebrews 12, 14, just one verse here. There are 
plenty of others, says that no one can expect to see or experience God without holiness. All that has been prayed for previously in this prayer, unity with God, his protection, this intimate relationship, knowing him intimately, you cannot really fully experience this unless you are holy. You are aligned to his purposes. You have set yourself apart from the world and seek to honour him and glorify him alone. Jesus wants his disciples to grow in their relationship with God. This growth can only take place if they remain in him and in his truth that he has revealed. Now, Jesus is the vine and his father is the gardener. As one presses into Jesus and his word, the attributes that are not fit for unity with God are pruned away. The purpose of this is not for our own or for the disciples' self-edification. The purpose of this is to produce fruit, mission. We are missionaries. Whether we're going on holidays or to Thailand, we are always on a mission trip. We are always representing God in this world. And to do that appropriately, we need to be holy. We need to be sanctified. kind of draws to a close this section of the prayer we're looking at. And I know that we are in the the middle of a three-week series when we're looking at prayer. And at night we're looking at at, at a prayer that Jesus has prayed or instruction for prayer. And in the morning we're looking at this prayer. And this prayer is a prayer that Jesus has prayed for us. And while we too can pray the things in this prayer, we we too can pray that we would be unified, and we should be. And we too can pray that we would bring glory to God, and we should. And we too can pray for protection, and we can pray for our, our sanctification and our holiness. But this is so much more than that. This is Jesus, the everlasting God, praying over his church, over his disciples, a prayer for them, for their unity, for their strength, for their holiness. When we hear this prayer, we should find encouragement so that we can pray in confidence. We look at this prayer and we see the one who prays for us and what he prays and who he is and our prayer life is transformed because We can pray in confidence because we know that God cares deeply for us and wants us to be protected in this world, to be unified and to represent him appropriately in this world. This is a prayer of Jesus standing over his church and we can can receive its benefit. Unity. Strength in a hostile world and holiness. They are promises to us. He is the great and supreme God. He is our hope. He is our strong deliverer. He is the everlasting God. And now he prays for us. 
He intercedes on our behalf eternally. And we can seek and take affirmation in his prayer. We can find confidence and strength for life in this. When we hear those sentences that just kind of shatter our world, we know Jesus has prayed. Look to me. Turn to me. My word is sure. My promises are true. I will not let you go. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word revealed in the Son, Jesus. That you have come into this world and you have, you have drawn us to you, Lord. And now, centuries later, your church has grown and we sit here today reading this prayer, this prayer for us. Lord, I know you prayed it with the focus of your disciples, but we are not beyond its reach. I'm going to pray that we would know these realities in our life. We would know who you are. We would, we would press into your word and seek to know you more and more. And in doing that, in becoming immersed in you, we would, our hearts would beat with yours and, we would, and unity would spread. And in times of trial, that we would, we would know your promises. We would find strength in you. And Lord, above all, we are on a mission. We are here to bring glory to you. Sanctify us. Keep us holy in your world, word, Lord, that we might honour you and love you. Amen.